I am so excited to welcome Jean Lee Cole, Loyola University, Maryland, professor in the English department and also the director of the program in American Studies. Welcome, Jean. Thank you. So we're going to talk about your kind of origin story, why you got into this stuff, um, why the archives matter in general, because you clearly you're sort of drawn to the archives in your, in your scholarship in general. Um, but yeah, let's start with that. Why, why, the arch why does digging into the archives matter in general, right? Yeah, so I guess um, I just love, I, I think I kind of got into this um, with an interest in book arts. And, uh, and so the idea of the book itself and the way that texts are produced has always really interested me. Um, and so I think when I went to graduate school to get my PhD in English, I was just kind of drawn to archival study um, because to me, the material object that contains texts is just as important as the words on the page. So, um, so that's really where a lot of this work has come out of is thinking about the conditions of production um, for these various texts. And as I did my continued doing research, I realized that there's so much um, history, especially with um, underrepresented populations that is just buried in the archives. It's all there, but no one has taken the time or the trouble to, to actually make it accessible to bring it back to the surface. So, um, yeah. So especially important for um, historically underrepresented communities. What's one of the sort of um, surprising discoveries that you, you've made here? Well, I would say, um, you know, with my uh, early work on Winifred Eaton, um, I spent a lot of time just paging through periodicals and you know, there, there were already bibliographies of her many publications, but um, over a period of about, of about 10 years, I found about 100 more short stories and um, nonfiction pieces that had, had been published in, in mainstream magazines that had just never been seen again, I guess, seen again, <laughs> um, because people just hadn't taken the time to just flip through the pages. So that was one, um, that was one really eye-opening um, kind of realization was that the stuff is just right there. You know, you just have to take some time and show up to the archive and um, and look. Right. Well, Win uh, Winfried um, Eaton as well has, tell us a little bit about her because she's herself biographically a really fascinating person. And then we're going to jump into comics. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So she, uh, she was a half, uh, half English, half Chinese um, Asian Canadian. Um, so she was actually born in Montreal, um, but she ended up becoming a popular novelist and adopted this Japanese, uh, fake Jap Japanese pseudonym, Onota Watana, and ended up kind of capitalizing on uh, the craze for, for Japanese culture at the end of the 19th century, and um, really catered to a lot of stereotypical representations of the Japanese writing these stories about geishas who would be seduced by white Americans. I mean, these kind of familiar stories um, and then betrayed by them. But usually she would give them a twist and, and the, the mixed race or Japanese heroine would come out on top in the end. So Yeah, so using kind of understanding the audience at the time, but using it as a sort of subterfuge. Yeah, I love that. Um, and comics, of course, do that all the time. So yeah. tell us your origin story. Like, how did you get into comic studies? 
Um, well, so I, uh, this book actually came out of a, what had started as a much larger project, which was to look at visual culture, um, 1890s era visual culture. And so I was going to look at magazines and newspapers and early film um, and comics were just going to be one chapter, um, the emergence of the newspaper comic strip. And then that project kept getting bigger and bigger and all the other chapters kept getting bigger and bigger. And finally, one of my uh, mentors said, you know, you just need to choose one chapter and the comics one has legs. So um, that's how I ended up kind of falling into it. So, um, so it really was my interest in the 1890s that got me, that showed me that the comics were even there. Um, and I was really attracted to them because when I saw the Yellow Kid for the first time, I had no idea how to even interpret it. Um, it made no sense to me at all. I could not understand why any, why this, you know, this comic strip was the basis of a circulation war between um, Hearst and Pulitzer. Um, I thought it was wild that somebody who had training in 1890s literature and culture and had been publishing on it for years that I could not interpret this, this comic strip, which, you know, people downgrade the form because it's supposed to be for kids. And um, so I thought, well, there's got to be something there. Um, and so that's really how I got into it. Um, the ironic thing is that when I was well into the project, I realized that I was kind of circling back to an earlier part of my life. I actually had a comic strip when I was in high school, um, mm -hmm. published a weekly comic strip in my school newspaper. And in, in college, I was obsessed with Crazy Cat. And I had kind of forgotten about that. Um, but uh, one day, I was... Uh, I had received a book, I had requested a book through Interlibrary Loan about Crazy Cat. And when it arrived, I realized by looking at the cover that I actually owned the book. It was actually on my shelf, <laughs> the leftover, you know, I'd been kind of moving it around the country for 20 years and um, had not looked at it since I was in graduate school. And I just thought, wow, okay, it's all kind of come back full circle. It was meant to be or something. Wow, that's extraordinary, yeah. <laughs> uh, gosh, okay, what a story. Um, and of course, this is your book, the one that's come uh, came out in January of this year, 2020. Um, wow, I mean, this is such important work in comic studies, but um, why don't you, from your perspective, tell us about this work and kind of Cats and Jammer Kids and Happy Hooligan and, you know, this period um, that's so understudied. Yeah, well, um, you know, the comic strip really emerged very quickly in the mid 19th century, or sorry, in the mid 1890s. And um, what is really surprising when you look at the, the newspapers themselves is how quickly the transition was made from the, you know, the, the, the humor supplements and the humor magazines, the joke magazines like Puck and um, Life and Truth, um, how quickly they evolved into the, um, the multi-panel two, you know, the two strip or the two row uh, comic layout. And, um, and in terms of the archive, I mean, at the, when I started the project, these strips were very, very difficult to find um, because many uh, university libraries and, and um, archives themselves just didn't keep these ephemeral publications. Um, you know, in part because daily newspapers, to, to keep those would have just required so much space that it was not possible. Um, 
So it was really hard to find them at first. I mean, I mostly relied on um, like collectors and who had, who just put, put up web pages and things like that. Um, but then by the end of the project, um, first of all, the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum um, is super accessible. And so I spent um, a couple weeks there a couple of years ago um, and they have so much stuff there, which was amazing to me. Um, and then since then, things like newspapers.com and um, other online, you know, Chronicling America um, has made these sources way more um, accessible um, to everyone. So I think now is the time when you're going to start seeing a lot of people studying these things and, and um, producing more scholarship, I hope. You know, this is a formal question, um, Jean, but when we, when we did move to the six panel narrative, did that? Did you notice a kind of uh, expansion of possibility for storytelling? If that makes sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I would have to say no. <laughs> okay. I think there was a. Yeah, this is where I think uh, the formulas became really rigid. Um, I mean, I, the the project and so my book. My book goes through, um, you know, the late 1910s, so it ends in 1920. But um, but I think, you know, what's interesting is I think some of the later strips that I look at, like uh, Crazy Cat, which emerged in the 19-teens, um, you know, I think the most innovative Crazy Cat strips are either the, um, you know, the single panel the small single panel ones or the full page Sunday strips. Um, and so I think he kind of took that back um, from some of the earlier full page uh, Sunday comic supplement strips. Really interesting, yeah. yeah. I, I've always wondered if constraints on the form in terms of publishing space, you know, does lead to greater creativity or kind of limitations, but it sounds to me like, um, we were, they were finding ways to actually en enhance creativity, right? Within those constraints. Um, the other, how the other half laughs, and I keep confusing that with how the other half lives. But <laughs> what tell, yeah, what are some like discoveries, some surprises that, you know, you've already talked a little bit about the work, but was there something that just like, wow, how did, I had no idea. Yeah, so there are, uh probably two things um, that, that really, um, that I would point to. One is um, my discovery of George Lukes as a comics artist. I, and and um, one of his strips is actually reproduced on your slide. Um, he, I knew him as a painter actually. And so when I stumbled upon a footnote somewhere, a mention that, that he had taken over from RF Outcall on, on the Yellow Kid, um, and I, I was shocked and, um, and, you know, and he's always dismissed in comic studies as being, you know, just the substitute after Outcall got um, hired away um, by William Randolph Hearst. But I actually think his strips are quite interesting, especially when you think of how they contributed to his evolution as a painter. Um, at the same time, when you read art history, um, art historical scholarship on Luke's, they completely dismiss his comics work and uh, his illustrations illustration work and they don't even want to talk about it. And so to me, it was really interesting that here was this person, and this happened over and over in the book, was to find people who actually had one foot in comics and one foot in what you might think of as fine art 
or um, literature. And, and that they were in both worlds at the same time, but the scholarship has really diverged. And, and so, um, you know, if they're talked about in scholarship in both fields at all, there doesn't seem to be a connection made. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the, the same person is producing this work at the same time, you know, so there must be some relation. Um, but Luke's, I thought, was really interesting because he, um, you know, he was a very, uh, he was a multi-talented guy. I mean, he also uh, participated in a lot of theatrical kind of, he, he was a performer. Um, he was also in black blackface minstrel shows and things like that. And so just thinking about all the ways that these different forms of cultural production kind of merged together, um, that was that was probably one of the major um, discoveries in doing the research for the book. This is maybe a leap for, for you or for me, but um, I'm wondering, like, was it seems like a real kind of epic of tremendous cross-pollinating creativity. Um, in many ways, we seem to be living kind of that moment today as well, but do you see any parallels in terms of culture or in terms of what's going on? You mean what's going on today? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I wonder if it's always been going on, you know? I mean, I guess that's what I wonder is, is if it's just the way that academic disciplines have evolved that want us to kind of separate the artists from the writers, from the pop culture people, you know, from the performers. Um, and, and, you know, and I think now we're actually starting to be able to see these connections, maybe because of our, our present moment, mm. um, you know, where you have people who actually do, who work in many different fields at the same time. Um, yeah, because like another figure who I talk about um, is actually the editor of the comics page. He was the editor of Hearst comic pages for over 20 years. And I actually credit him with being one of the people who um, oversaw the development of the six panel comic strip. Um, and he also wrote over 100 short stories. Uh, Rudolph Block was his name. And he wrote under the name Bruno Lessing. So. Um, scholars of Jewish, Jewish American literature know him as Bruno Lessing and never talk about the fact that he edited the comics page. Um, but he, and then the comics people all dismiss him as being kind of this, you know, terrible boss who, um, you know, who forced all the comics artists to, to use this very rigid format. Um, so that's another example of somebody who, you know, had you know, one, one foot in one field and one foot in another, but that just kept happening over and over in this book. And, and then when you get the fact that they all knew each other and worked together too, um, yeah, it kind of blows your mind. Is there a sort of formulation or concept about laughter um, in, in this uh, book of yours um, that kind of comes from the comics work? Yeah, well, you know, I think a lot of people um, who read these early comic strips are struck by two things. One is that they're not really funny in the way that they expect. Um, they don't seem to have a lot of, I mean, <laughs> the, the humor is not sophisticated, let's just say. Um, and a lot of it's based on uh, physical violence and on um, incongruity and just absurdity. Um, and so, um, 
And, and I think the response a lot of the time was just to kind of laugh without even understanding necessarily why you were laughing. You know, you would just see this horrifying image and like Santa eating these boys in your slide and just, and you would kind of laugh in horror. Um, and, I, and I was really thinking about what kind of function that kind of laughter would play. Um, because I think especially for the working class and um, lower middle class readers of these newspapers, they really craved this kind of, this media. And so I thought, well, this laughter must serve some kind of purpose, you know, whether it's cathartic or, um, or something else. And, and what I argue in the book is that this is actually a way to kind of like, when you're all laughing together at these strips, you're kind of establishing some sense of group identity, that we are people who laugh at this. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when they're laughing at themselves, represented in the comics, you know, like Irish people laughing at Happy Hooligan or something, that there's a kind of like, oh, we get this. You know, we've seen this situation. It has happened to us. We're mm-hmm. laughing at it. And, and, and we laugh at it together. So I think that idea of, of you know, um, socially constructive laughter as opposed to denigrating mocking laughter, I think also has, has not been studied a lot. And, you know, and I think if you're from uh, a community that's experienced oppression, um, I mean, it's not like you just think about oppression all the time, you know, <laughs> I mean, laughter is really important. And, and so that was another thing that I was trying to pull out was to, to think about that role of, uh, of laughter and humor and how that, that comics were actually a source of that. So important, yeah. So when you kind of bring this stuff into your classrooms, how, yeah, tell us, share with us, if you don't mind, some, some of the kind of trademark teaching methods. Um, well, you know, you think that, uh, I guess, graphic narrative native, you know, th- that generation, I don't know if we would, we would call them that. But, you know, I mean, the, the kids who are in college now, I mean, they've been around graphic narrative their whole lives in one form or another. But um, it's striking to me that they actually don't know how to, how to really read it. I mean, it's just like reading any kind of text. Um, and so, um, so I often bring in, I think as most of us do, um, S- Scott McLeod, um, but I also bring in Thierry Gronstein to just to kind of look, especially with his, um, his concept of braiding, to think about how we can read comics, not just as the words on the page or as the plot as it takes place, but the way that the images are actually juxtaposed um, within the page, across the page, and then throughout uh, the whole narrative. So, um, so I, I do teach Fun Home um, fairly frequently, and, and, and I think that concept of braiding um, is really useful in, the, in, that, in talking about that work because there are recurrent images and, and uh, compositional strategies that she uses that help you create parallels and associations throughout that narrative. Mm. Um, yeah, and then I also use uh, Battle Lines, um, which is a kind of graphic history, I guess you could say. I guess that's what they call it, graphic history of the Civil War. Um, and I actually used that in a course on um, Civil War the Civil War in American Literature. I mean, I mostly teach literature courses. Um, I actually don't teach any courses that are just on uh, graphic narrative. And I ended up using this in lieu of a history book um, for that class. Um, and initially I thought, well, I just don't have time on my syllabus to ask them to read all this history that they really need to know in order to understand the literature. But it, 
the students just love this book because the, um, especially in conjunction with teaching them how to actually read the visual elements, juxtaposed with um, some of the more text-heavy pages where where um, Federvorm and Kelman are actually explaining the history, that they were able to get this super nuanced and affective kind of understanding of the Civil War that I think they would not have um, from reading most historians. And I don't mean this as a knock on the historians, but. <laughs> I totally get it. I'm the same way. I'll, I'll do the imperf uh, imperfect um, history that Ilan Stavans and Lalo Alcaraz, I'll sometimes teach that or I'll teach um, the uh, Latina, Latino USA. And um, it's true that some, well, what's remarkable to me is that the students don't know about history very sorry but not and again I'm not knocking anybody but like they didn't get this stuff in high school somehow I don't know how right or or it just didn't stick let you know um I think it's probably that it didn't stick and and some of that I think is just you know we don't live in a we live in a very image saturated world which doesn't necessarily mean that students know how to read them better but um, and I think text is less, uh, leaves less of an impression, um, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Um, the kind of, the graphic history as a kind of welcome mat. And then once they're in there, in this space, they can start kind of reconfiguring and understanding um, U.S. history. So let's talk about what excites you most in the study of comics today. Um, yeah, well, I think... We can go both forward and backwards, I guess. Um, in my, my scholarship is really, um, I study periodicals, um, and that's actually another entrance point that, that led me to comics. Um, and I've just been become really interested in how web comics and online and, and the internet has kind of disrupted or re, reconceptualized the way we think about comics as a periodical you know, um, as something that appears periodically. Um, and so this is, um, I mean, you see this with comic books as well, but um, I really, I, f I follow a couple of web comics just to see, um, you know, how they, how you kind of like get this growing sense of, of what the storyline is. Um, I really like Nathan Pyle's um, Strange Planet. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, thinking about comics, or thinking about comics as an example of, of how periodicity is changing, because I think this is true for magazines and newspapers also, um, that that's an area that's totally open, um, I think, for, for study now. Um, reaching back, there is so, I mean, I, I mentioned this at the beginning, but there's um, so much um, early comics history that um, really needs to be mined organized, talked about, and processed, you know, um, because I think for so long comics were just dismissed as being pop culture, um, and pop culture didn't really become uh, a respected area of study until well after the um, newspaper comic strip period. The interesting part of the newspaper comic strip period, I think, had ended decades earlier. Um, so there are um, tons and tons of these strips that haven't been talked about and, and really show interesting angles on uh, culture um, of that time. And so I think they're a real historical resource that um, could be tapped further. Um, there's also just a ton of um, 
immigrant and, and black periodicals that have comics, I'm sure that, that we just haven't found yet. So that's an area that I'm really interested in um, pursuing as well. Right, absolutely. Yeah, that was, it's been historically an important space for Latino creators as well. Um, you know, um, early creators like um, um, with Gordo and, and other comics. And of course today, Lalo Alcaraz is one of our kind of premier, um, you know, comic strip creators, especially satirical political comics. Um, yeah, so exciting, so rich. Web comics, periodical, peri per comics is periodical. Um, Jean Lee Cole, Loyola University, Maryland. Professor, beloved teacher, scholar, <laughs> uh, courageous um, archivist, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me.